struggle, every doubt, God, meet us there. We thank you that you have the answers, Lord, that you will guide us. We thank you for the power of your name, the power of Jesus. God, we believe in it. thank you that we have that today. We have the ability to call on the name of Jesus. That's a gift. We thank you, Lord. Let's continue to lift our voices. Lost are saved and find their sound of your great name and all condemned
Amen. I'll let you just catch your breath for a minute and grab a seat. I have a few announcements for you and uh, welcome. Welcome to New Market Alliance Church. My name is Chris and I'm on staff here at the church and we are so glad that you are here with us this morning. And if you are here for the first time, welcome. And I hope you notice we love to worship. This morning is um, an opportunity for us to come together as the church, to support, free, support each other, care for each other, encourage one another to worship and praise God as a unit. Um, and so those are special opportunities that we have every week, actually. And you know what? Even in the summer. So if you're thinking of checking out for the whole summer... Don't be afraid to come back on a Sunday because we're here and uh, this great worship team and they will keep bringing great worship week after week all summer long. So even today, good for you for choosing to come here this morning on the first really beautiful Sunday, I think, that we've had. So hopefully the rest of the day will be spectacular for you. So there are welcome cards or connection cards on the back of the seat. If you are here for the first time, please fill that out for us. We would just love to acknowledge that you were here this morning and joined in with us. No pressure whatsoever. But if you do fill it out and hand it in to the Welcome Center, there is a gift for you. So that might be an incentive to just fill out the card. Let us know that you were here for a visit. And we would love to just acknowledge that you were here. Uh, You also received a program coming in today, and that is a new program. Every month or so, we refresh the program when we're in a series, and today is the first Sunday of our new series, and the series is entitled Holy Discontent. Now, as Christians, sometimes we wonder, is it okay to be angry? And actually, God was angry about some things, and Jonathan prayed about that this morning when we were together in prayer. Excuse me. And it's okay to be angry about the things that anger God's heart. And so if that's something that interests you or you're intrigued about, please come back and hear some of this series or catch it on the podcast. If you're at the cottage or away, you can always hear the messages on our podcast. Also, if there's something that's stirring in your own soul, that's something that you are discontent about and that you are passionate about, something that you've invested your time or your energy or your resources in, please speak to Jonathan or one of the staff, and we'd love to have a testimony or have you share the teaching this summer. So we're still looking for those individuals that might want to share their story or share something that they are passionate about, that they feel that they can make a difference in this world because of what is stirring in their soul. So please also consider that. All right, a few things coming up in the weeks. Ladies Coffee this Thursday, 645, that's right. And I understand the coffee will be delectable. I'm not sure what that means. But if you uh, want to come out for a good cup of coffee, some coffee house feel with a panel discussion on some hot topics, or um, just how we as women let God nurture our soul and how sometimes those things get in the way from us hearing from him. So please, please make an opportunity on Thursday night to come join us. I had the privilege this week to meet with the pastor at Church Church of Christ on Davis Drive, and his um, summer camp leader, and they do an amazing summer camp for the community, and they get about 50 kids from the neighborhood, Um, well over half of those are kids that don't go to church, 
and just don't have opportunities this summer to do all the fun stuff that other kids get to do. So Church of Christ creates this week. They just go all out, and they, they have the fire department coming with a truck, and like they just go all out. And if that's something that you'd like to support, please come join me. It's the first week of July. We can use all kinds of volunteers, small group leaders, people behind the scenes. Uh, they have been doing this for over 15 years, and some of their volunteers are getting a little tired. So I felt like we couldn't quite organize it ourselves, and so our opportunity is to get on board with them and to support what they are doing in our community. So if that interests you, please come and speak to me because I would love to get you involved. Okay, uh, picnic. June 23rd, we have a picnic. I have postcards right here at the end of the service if you would like one. It's our Forge event for June, but everyone is welcome. Come and bring your lawn chairs, bring a picnic. Even if you want to pick up your life, organizing a picnic is too much work, just pick up a Subway sandwich and come join us at the park. Bring a blanket or a lawn chair. If you want to join in for baseball, bring your glove. Um, we'll have the bats and the bases. Paul's got all that stuff somewhere stored in his garage or basement or somewhere. Um, we'll have all the equipment. Just come and join in. We want to do adults and youth and just have a really fun time in the afternoon in the park. Okay, I think it's time for a break, and I've talked enough, so please uh, take a few minutes, grab a beverage, a coffee or a tea, something cold, and we will uh, reconvene right back here in about five minutes. So mingle, get to know each other a little bit better, and we'll see you here in five.
Oh God, how I need 
We're going to teach you a song, so I'm going to have you sit, um, and this has been one of my favorite songs, actually, for a long time, and um, it's powerful, and I, and I do um, want to just read to you from the message and kind of where this song kind of was brought out of. Um, so Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, Psalm 22, verses 22 to 29, like this. Here's the story I'll tell my friends when they come to worship and punctuate it with hallelujahs. From the four corners of the earth, people are coming to their senses, are running back to God. Long-lost families are falling on their faces before him. God has taken charge From now on, he has the last word. All the power mongers before him are before him, and they're worshiping. All the poor and the powerless, too, worshiping. Along with those who never got it together, worshiping. I just invite you to listen to these words, and I will eventually invite you to sing as well. So...
here today who have shown up and need you to meet a specific need. We just want to ask in Jesus' name, would you come and meet that need? Would you be so present with them in their need? 
We lift them up and trust them to you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your singing today. Have a seat. And um, we have started a new series, as you've already heard. And we um, want to welcome anybody who's brand new today. And I just want to say this is a time where we're going to take up our offering. And we would just say let the the basket go by you. We um, This is an act of worship for those who are calling NAC their home, and um, so don't feel pressure in any way to give, but this is just the time that we do that. We continue worshiping as we give. Um, so ushers can be ready, and we're going to watch our screen as it gives kind of a preview of this series. Thanks. Sure. I get upset sometimes. Driving in traffic makes me angry. Waiting in line annoys me. When my kids don't listen, that frustrates me. And my husband's stupid habits completely irritate me. Driving in traffic, waiting in line, not listening, stupid habits. Angry, annoyed, frustrated, irritated. Angry, annoyed, frustrated, irritated. Oh yeah, I get angry. Yeah. Get angry well, you know, I get I get angry at um, I get angry at God. I get uh, He alone can sustain my anger. Yeah, I get angry at myself. Uh, I get angry, hopefully more redemptively angry. Now, if you can't get angry, how can you possibly long for justice? I mean, those that work for justice are are redemptively pissed off. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, no, I will not be passive in the fact that we live in an hour when there's more human slaves than in any period of history. If that didn't make you angry, what does it make you feel? You know, our theology of even hope does not minimize our anger. It frees us to be angry. But again, it, it doesn't sabotage good anger on cynicism. Anybody can be cynical. It takes no effort. You know, I've had a PhD in cynicism, I know. And so salvation confronts the injustice I've experienced and along offers me the hope that God's name is Redeemer and that a day of justice has already happened in history called the cross and its outworkings will be fully realized as all things are put right. Uh, salvation has to do with far beyond my own private experience of the gospel. You know, the, this story of redemption is so much bigger than me and God in our little quiet time. To understand this gospel of restoration writes me into the narrative that says because justice has been won at the cross, I am to live as both an object of such rich affection and a subject in a kingdom that confronts injustice with a mercy that's terribly disruptive. You know, the mercy of God is not passivity. To love, mercy, do justice is a terribly glorious life of living as saboteurs or turning everything upside down through the radical mercy of God that will not say no in the face of evil. Truly, evil hates beauty, but love trumps evil. Park Alliance Church. I, I hope my uh, lips sync up with my uh, volume. Uh, I'm sure it will. So glad that you're here. Um, man, you are a love people. I, this is a great church. If you're looking for a church, you found a, a great church. And uh, um, do you see me on guitar there? Yeah? Okay, good. Uh, I, no, no, I wasn't, guys. I, look, no, please. I didn't come this morning to play guitar, but there was a, a vacancy, 
And uh, I, I don't know if you knew this, at West, I used to be Pastor Glenn at West, a shorter, you know, better looking version of Pastor Glenn. <laughs> and uh, so I miss it, and uh, so thanks for indulging me. Um, just a quick straw poll, if, if Raptors go to game seven, which would be a Sunday, would, would there be anybody interested in like hanging out here in a little church Jurassic Park? Yeah, okay, there's one, yeah? Okay, I mean, I hope, I hope they win tomorrow, but that would be, that would be fun. Um, there's a couple places where I have had the most sort of uh, success, the best opportunities for sort of evangelistic, spiritual conversations. One happens to be in sports bars watching UFC, now, I don't know what it is about that, something about two men stripped to the waist in a steel cage fighting to the death that just must bring out um, conversations about the afterlife and what does it all mean. Uh, the other, though, is sitting in hairdresser's chair. And I don't know, like it's something to do maybe with the intimacy of it all. I think anybody who touches your neck and ears, you know, you've automatically just are or got some intimacy in there, and, um, or maybe has something to do with being trapped in a chair for 40 minutes, uh, and that question comes up, so what do you do? Now, one hairdresser was not having it, though. She told me right off the bat that God, faith, the church, um, you know, everything I'd given my adult life to was, was bunk, and so I asked her how she came to that conclusion, and, and this is what it was. She came across a verse or a series of verses in the Bible that spoke of God being a jealous God. Have you ever come across a verse like that? Yeah. And uh, she knew right then that she wanted nothing to do with a so-called God that had such, you know, petty, human, ugly emotions. So I tried to gently push back and go, you know, well, what if you love somebody with all your heart and and you gave your life to them, and you wanted only the best for them, and that person betrayed you and cheated on you and ignored you, like, you could understand why being jealous for that person's affection might actually be the most reasonable response. But she wasn't having it. And it was, it was a deal breaker for her. Uh, and I had to wonder if that was maybe a, a convenient out for her to dismiss, you know, the bigger questions of, faith uh, with this rather, I thought, flimsy objection, but also made me think about the inherent problems of language itself, you know, all the nuance, all the interpretation, the misunderstanding in language. You know, what means one thing to me might mean something very different to you. There's a lot of interpretation, like jealous to her might have meant stalker or spiteful or crazy ex-boyfriend, right? And uh, jealous doesn't have a great modern connotation, gets lost in translation sometimes. For instance, you know, this whole discussion we're having about the LGBTQ community, and so when someone asks me, like, what's your opinion on the gay lifestyle? And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let me just stop you right there. What do you mean by that? Are we talking about same-sex attraction? Are we talking about promiscuous sexual acts? 
somebody who identifies as gay but is celibate, there's a, there's a lot of assumptions that are made in that hyphenated word, gay lifestyle. And so uh, maybe the same assumptions could be made of the word temptation. It's lumped in with all the things that are bad and evil, and, and uh, you gotta think that Jesus himself was tempted in every way and yet sinned not. I like how the, the old-timey KJV talks, how he sinned not. I think for a lot of people, the word anger, you know, as it relates to the Christian life, is automatically assumed to be sort of unsavory, unhelpful, a part of, you know, a harmful part of the human condition and maybe sin nature itself. And I must confess, most of my dealings with that emotion of anger, uh, personally, have been more on the sinful side of the equation. You know, in my adult, married, Christian, pastoral life, I have almost gotten into fistfights with people in theaters. I have followed vehicles into their neighborhood who've cut me off in traffic. I'm not sure what I was going to do if I caught them. Exactly. I have a cousin. Maybe this is a Ganyu thing. Like, you know, Steve blames his Irish heritage on his alcoholism. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. He's, he's, I'm so kidding. Um, there's a Ganyu anger maybe. Just recently, my cousin, who's a bit of an awesome loose cannon, uh, came out of McDonald's, and he may or may not have cut somebody off as he came out of the drive-thru. And the person wheeled up beside him at the stoplight and said, you know, roll down your window. So he rolled down his window, and the guy threw a water right into his car. And so my cousin, just without thinking, grabbed the first thing that he had, which was a large milkshake. Chucked it back, it went off like a grenade. Pink as far as the eye can see. He's not proud of it, and yet for some reason I find great satisfaction in that story. So, look, the Bible actually has a lot to say about anger, and often it's in the context of sinful behavior or attitudes or intentions of your heart. James 1.20 says... Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. But God gets angry, doesn't he? His, his anger burned against the oppressive Egyptians, it says in, in Exodus 32. His anger arose against his own ungrateful, idolatrous Israelite people. In Joshua, when covenants are broken, he gets angry. It seems uh, the anger of the Lord can be provoked. And Ezra says his anger is on those who abandon him. Um, try and even count how many times the anger of the Lord is used in the Psalms. There is a, a lot of anger against pagan gods that the Lord has. He shows his anger in the New Testament, by the way, it, it, at disobedience. I mean, for all the hundreds of times that anger shows up in scripture, I can't think of one worship song that's about anger. You know, oh, the anger of the Lord is, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't sing well. 
And I get it, like we don't like to think of God expressing the emotion of anger. Some of you, some of you had angry dads, angry moms. And so you're a little triggered when you think of a angry God. But listen, we can't equate God's anger with our human experience with that emotion. Again, we look to the Bible, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 tells us that it's possible to experience anger but not sin. And, and we know that God can't sin. We know everything he does is good and holy. Um, so therefore, we know that his anger must be righteous, unlike the way that we commonly experience anger. The, the context of the verses of God getting angry reveals why he gets angry. God gets angry when there's a violation of uh, his character. God is righteous and just and holy, and, and none of those attributes are to be compromised. So I think it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to the things that make God angry, righteously angry. Pay attention to the things that made Jesus angry, righteously angry. There's this whole other sermon we could do about, you know, how to express anger in a healthy, godly way. We're just going to have to wait for someone else to preach it because I'll be in the front row taking notes, you know. But Paul seems to acknowledge that we're going to feel angry sometimes and that feeling may not in itself be sinful. It's a, it's a natural human emotion, even a reflection of God's image in us. So, so we look to Jesus, the author, the, the, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, the one who shows us how to live well and react well and love well, the most emotionally healthy example uh, in all history. This was a perfect man, the one who knew no sin but got angry. You remember when his dear friend Lazarus died? We know the verse, Jesus wept. It's the first verse every lazy kid commits to memory, right? But do you remember his first emotion, the verse that comes before that? It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. You know, I, I think when someone who you love dies, there ought to be a feeling of righteous anger. And I wonder if what Jesus felt in this moment as he looks around and he sees grieving people, and by the way, you haven't seen grieving until you've seen a Middle Eastern funeral. I wonder if he's feeling this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not what I created. This, this is the consequence of sin and death and that old liar, Satan. Death was never part of my plan and it makes me angry because not least of which, I see how it just devastates people. You know, we should be angry about death. Jesus was. We should be angry about Poverty and racism and sickness and corruption and injustice and religious hypocrisy. And we, and we look no further than Jesus to see he was angry about all those things too. And so for the purposes of this series, 
I've been using this term holy discontent. It's a righteous anger that something's not quite right in the world. Something that breaks the heart of God is breaking your heart too, breaking my heart. You know, when people think of the anger of Jesus, if they even think of the anger of Jesus, I'll bet there's one scene that comes to mind. What, what scene comes to mind when you think of the anger of Jesus? Yeah, tables. Um, they were called, you know, he makes a whip. He, he turns over the tables of what were called the money changers. Uh, why don't we read that from the Gospels? It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In fact, in the Gospel of John, uh, it says he made a whip out of cords and, and drove them out of the court. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Okay, some context here might be helpful. You know, it's interesting that around the time of Jesus, the temple was actually more representing the man, you know, the, the oppressor to the common worshiper, particularly the, the Gentile or the, the outsider. Herod, this great megalomaniac, megalomaniac, He'd been instrumental in its construction. And so the temple gradually starts to represent the culture and everything that's wrong and corrupt and political and institutional. And the high priests there began to sort of use the temple to their own advantage. It becomes really just, just enmeshed with, with the culture. I, I kind of feel like this might be how the modern North American institutional church has gotten off track at times, you know? The evangelical church that at times seems to be in bed with the NRA or the Republican Party or, or unchecked capitalism or privilege in general. And instead of being on the side of the oppressed and the poor and the sick and the underdog, you know, anybody ever listened to this podcast with uh, Phil Vischer and Sky Jathani, the Holy Post podcast? Anybody? No, Phil Vischer is the creator of, of VeggieTales. Sky is a good um, Christian and Missionary Alliance author and pastor. And uh, Sky told this story of preaching at a church and a father talking to him after the sermon. And he was really worried about his college-age kids who were now, you know, uh, having different ideas, sort of liberal ideas that were sort of shocking to his dad. And so Sky encouraged him not to let politics become the impediment to, to young people engaging in their faith. And he could tell dad wasn't quite getting it. And so he finally said to dad, he says like, well, what's more important to you, that your children become followers of Jesus or that your children become conservative Republicans? And the father looked at him confused and said in all seriousness, well, what's the difference? You know, it can be a scary thing when Christianity sort of gets intertwined with nationalism or political parties or 
human institutions. And so this is what's going on with the temple 2,000 years ago. It's, it's sort of intertwined with the state. And in fact, Josephus, who's a firsthand historian, a non-Christian, recorded that when the rebels got into the temple around A.D. 66, the first thing they did was they burned the records of debt. I would be like today going into the central bank and like destroying all the records of mortgages and credit card debt. Oh, uh, one day, maybe. Uh, it, was, it was a militant sort of pushback to the way that not only the occupying Romans, but the temple itself had sort of kept people under their thumb. And so Jesus arrives at Passover and goes to the temple precincts. This is like the sort of two big football fields outside the temple. It's not like going into someone's church, you know, and throwing tables around. Um, Why was Jesus so angry, you ask? You know, we take this passage to mean we shouldn't sell books and CDs and tickets in in the church lobby. That's not not what it's about. Uh, There were... There were non-Jewish people who worshipped Yahweh, Gentile worshippers. Often in the Bible, they're they're called God-fearers. And they would come to Jerusalem during Passover. It was like their yearly pilgrimage. The whole city is going to be filled with guests on this pilgrimage. I've heard estimates that there were three million in the city at this time, which seems crazy to me for that time. Now, Part of temple worship, as you probably know, was the sacrifice of animals. And it's believed that the temple had quite a little scam going here, wherein you could have bought a dove or a pigeon or something outside the temple gates for 20 times less than what they're selling it inside. But the temple inspector uh, would just so happen to find all these defects in the, ample, in, the, in the animal that would make it ceremonially unclean and impure for sacrifice and then conveniently make them buy the animal inside the temple gates for like 20 times the price. And these travelers also had to exchange their local currency for sort of this temple currency, the money changers. And they, uh, they had this criminally high exchange rate. And all this for the privilege of worshiping Yahweh, for these, for these outsiders, for these Gentile people to worship Yahweh. And so all that money is, is really going to a temple scam. And so these, these God-fearing Gentiles couldn't even, they couldn't even, first of all, get very close to the sanctuary to pray. That's for, that's for Jewish people. They're relegated to the outer courts, the football fields, The only place where they could pray and worship is filled with bartering and yelling and the sounds of commerce and animals. And Jesus is seeing this this commercial interests, this corruption that's superseding the worship of his father and seeing what a terrible witness it is. Maybe he even even thinks back to God's covenant with, with the nation. He, he thinks back to the covenant with Abraham that through Abraham, the Jewish nation was supposed to be a blessing to who? All nations, everybody, not, not just to themselves, all people. And instead of that, they were, 
taking advantage of. They were scorning and casting aside the nations. It's such a terrible testimony of the one true God. They were, they were supposed to be a spiritual lighthouse to the world. And so that's when Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer for who? All nations. All nations. He's confronting a form of, of racism, of consumerism, of heresy. And he calls them literally a cave of robbers. And, and he invokes the language of Jeremiah 7. And listen, no priest wanted to hear anything from Jeremiah 7, which warned of a corrupt and oppressive priesthood and the judgment that would come on the, that priesthood. They knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. And Jesus was saying, you keep this up and you're doomed. You're on your way to another temple destruction in the way that the first temple was destroyed as a consequence of God. And, and they would have arrested him right then and there if it weren't for the fact that the Gospels say they were afraid of the people uh, who had just celebrated Jesus as Messiah. This is around uh, the time of Palm Sunday. Um, it's uh, anger that was righteously justified. There, there's a way to be good and mad, apparently, when we get angry about the things that God gets angry about. I believe the motivating reason why millions of people choose to do good in the world is because there is something wrong in the world that just stirs their heart, that just wrecks them. You know, so not every societal ill is your personal assignment, but there's one out there I bet there's one that has your name on it because he wants you to do something about it. This may be the only sermon series where your pastor is going to challenge you to get angry. Get angry about something, to get fed up, to learn what it means to be uncomfortable, to, to lean into your holy discontent. Well, pastor, I, I'm not sure I know what my holy discontent is. Well, maybe not. Now you don't. But don't give up too soon looking for it, okay? Keep exposing your heart and, and your eyes and your ears to the needs in this world. Travel more. Get off the resort for a few days. Go to the inner city. And there's going to be a moment in time where God is just going to cause an angst in you. And, and you'll get to a level where you say, I gotta do something about this. And then when you find it, feed it. That's very counterintuitive, right? Most of the time when you discover something that makes you uncomfortable, you do everything you can to get away from it. You know, medicate it, don't think about it. But I'm challenging you this summer, if the, if the plight of the poor, for instance becomes your holy discontent. Increase your exposure to the plight of the poor. Rearrange your schedule uh, so you can see some of the rotten conditions that certain people are subjected to. Listen to the stories with fresh ears of, of people who are stuck in cycles of poverty, generational poverty. Stay close 
to your holy discontent. You know, we had this great networking course, a small group of about 11 of us. And one of the ways we, you know, discerned our spiritual gift was to really talk about those things that make us angry. We talked about, you know, I love that Danita has a heart for the disabled. It makes her angry the way some are treated. I love that Christine has a heart for the environment. It makes her angry how wasteful we are. We talked about the sexually abused and the trafficked and the, the, the marriages in trouble, the refugee crisis, the, the racial inequality, our indigenous people, political corruption, church unity or lack thereof, um, mental health issues, clean water. You know, the point is the irresistible attraction to a, a specific cause, it compels people to invest their time and their resources and their, their energies. It, it, it always seems to come back to a spark of frustration that fuels a raging fire in their souls. Well, hey, pastor, what about the voices that are telling me to actually be content? Yeah, it's true. It's even scriptural. Lots of books, lots of sermons have been written advocating contentness. Here's the problem. Um, If that's lived out of context, in isolation, it can be lethal. You know, you could become sort of the worst version of a suburban Christian who just wants to protect themselves from the realities of a lost and dying world. You know, the temptation of being lulled into a state of safety and satisfaction, you know, it it neglects needs in the world that actually should elicit deep discontentment. Um, When you read the New Testament, you're going to bound to see these discontent-producing questions like, what about the poor? Uh, Who's going to care for the sick and the dying? Is anybody going to visit prisoners? Who's going to clothe the naked, uh, take care of the orphans, listen to the hurting, give water and food to the hungry and thirsty? You know, Martin Luther King Jr. became famous, I think, for his holy discontent. Whites only signs. Lynching of his brothers and sisters. Segregation. Mother Teresa becomes famous for her holy discontent. She said, you know, when I see waste, I feel angry on the inside. I don't approve of myself getting angry, but it's something you can't help after seeing Ethiopia. You know, she was just a simple geography teacher in Calcutta and she walks outside and sees the deplorable conditions men women children sick dying hungry and so in 1950 she gets permission from the Vatican uh, to launch her own order called the missionaries of charity you know the story Um, and what began with a dozen people now has more than 4,000 nuns who are working diligently to ensure that refugees and drug addicts and prostitutes and homeless and blind, deaf, poor, orphaned are being cared for. I wonder, I wonder, maybe we'll never know on this side of eternity, but how many hundreds of organizations 
were launched by entrepreneurial believers who were inspired by Mother Teresa. This is going to make me sound super uncool, but I'm a U2 super fan, okay? I have, well, me and Neil can be uncool together, right? Uh, I have their box sets, I have all their DVD concerts, I, I get all their albums on opening day since I was 13 years old. I've seen them every live opportunity I can get. Super nerd, okay? And I'm not comparing uh, lead singer Bono to Mother Teresa or MLK at all. He'd be mortified by that comparison. But in 1984, his friend Bob Geldof said, you gotta see what's going on in Ethiopia. So he and his wife, Ali, boarded a plane to see what all the fuss was about. They went very quietly, no fanfare or entourage. And they would spend that summer working at a Ethiopian feeding camp. And it, it wrecked him. It wrecked his wife, Ali. They couldn't get the images of those starving kids out of their head. And it profoundly changed them. Um, it changed his songwriting. It changed how he used his platform, which increased every year. Fast forward, and he's not only done all kinds of works of compassion, but works of justice. What's the difference? Compassion is spending a summer working in an Ethiopian camp. Justice is fighting the root systemic causes of that hunger and that poverty. Bono's lobbied world leaders for the cancellation of massive debt that keeps countries enslaved. He fought tooth and nail for funding for, for the AIDS pandemic, which, which by the way has seen AIDS, HIV cases go down consistently since his involvement. He works to reform trade policy. You know, it came down to a summer in Ethiopia and him saying, and I quote, I've got to give myself to something more than making records. So what do we do with this discontent? What does it look like to, to not back down from the fights that must be fought? Do we march? Do we write emails? Do we run for office? Do we occupy Wall Street? Yeah, I'm not sure. I wonder though if the first step in answering these questions is, is getting informed, getting educated about these issues. It was my wife and my trip to Cambodia, just being exposed, seeing uh, little boys and little girls trafficked in our, in our very, before our very eyes, that put a holy discontent in us. Have you ever wondered like why when you turn your life over to God, you don't just get like overnight expressed right into heaven? Or to put it like more crassly, if we're so heaven bound, then why are we still sucking air down here on earth? Well, I think Ephesians 2.10 might have something to say about it. He says that we are God's handiwork or workmanship. We were created for good works that God prepared for us in advance to do, which explains how I know that you have a holy discontent banging around in your brain somewhere. So 
How will you know when that one thing shows up? Well, for starters, it will be a pesky preoccupation, you know, that's going to vie for your attention during the day. It's going to keep you awake at night. It's going to capture your heart. It's going to ignite your imagination. It might be the thing even that forces you to the floor in tears. Is it injustice? Is it loveless marriages, abused children, um, immoral business practices? Is it crooked politics, dysfunctional churches, lackluster worship, over-entertained young people who are under-challenged, drifting from God. You know, I look around the room. I, I, I've had enough stories from all y'all that I, I see the holy discontent. You know, Christina has given her vocational life to working with people trying to find a home who don't have the money to do it. You know, her husband Jeremy had sort of a woke moment in his college years where he realized, I am a white male of privilege, and there are women, people of color, who are not getting a say. Uh, his holy discontent, look around, I see Don, you know, who has a holy discontent for the grieving for those alone in hospitals, you know? Who else? I look at the Maxmans, you know, who have a holy discontent about people who are going hungry in our own uh, community of Newmarket. See Byron over there? He's got a holy discontent about people who are stuck in their addiction and their bondage. He's got a holy discontent about those who are not experienced healing. Got a holy discontent from Josephine about those who are single moms and being wrongly um, vilified. Uh, I think of the Clouks who have a holy discontent that nobody should be in the church and without a home, without hospitality. Uh, Dave has a holy discontent about how the church has judged a community. Um, lean into it. Um, expose your heart to, to more of it. I, I, there are a few things more inspiring than a person who, who transforms something he just can't stand into the kind of positive energy that, that advances restoration in the world. You know, I want to close, though, with a word about hope. You know, when you're serving in your area of holy discontent, there's a thing that just wrecks you. But if you let pessimism, cynicism take over from that faith-based optimism that comes through the hope that we have in Christ, you know, people who work a lot with the poor can get so discouraged from what seems like insurmountable, unsolvable, systemic issues, people who are working with cancer patients or corruption or racism or, I mean, they can get so burnt out when they see how deep, how ingrained these issues are. There, there's such a thing as compassion fatigue. I'm looking at four, you know, paramedics right in front of me and I, I bet you it's a, it's a job, uh, what do you call it, a vocational hazard 
And I'm just encouraging folks, don't let hope die in the midst of this. You can't surrender this Christ-given optimism. You have to nurture this truth that all things are possible through Christ. You have to believe that lost people can still get found, that, that wandering people can still come home, that sick bodies can still be healed by the power of God. Poor people can be lifted out of poverty. You have to believe that God still answers prayer. Keep hope alive in you. Somebody say amen. amen. Our whole broken world is asking Christians this question. Is your God going to do anything about this? Are you people who call yourself Christ followers going to do anything about this? Are tyrants going to rule the day? Is racism going to win the day? Is violence and war just inevitable? Will hunger and homelessness increase? Are marriages going to keep breaking up? Will churches keep closing their doors? Is, is that just what we're destined for? And so for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we better have an answer. And our answer can be this. It doesn't have to be that way. This is not God's way. It's not his plan. In Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, it doesn't have to be this way. Sins can be forgiven. Prayers can be answered. Relationships can be restored. Dead churches can be resurrected. But we have to live that hope and believe it, it, it can radiate for others. We can't you know, have our head in the sand and we can't wait for the next generation of Christians to do something about it, it's one of the great things we bring to this community. It's one of the great things Knack brings to this world. One word, hope. So it can't die in us today. It's got to live in us today. I'm going to invite the band to come. And I would like, just for the first half of the song, for you to, to think on something, to really examine Yourself. I want to ask you a dangerous question. What can't you stand? There is so much at stake here in our, in our broken world. And you know what it is. You know what it is when you see it, when you hear it, when you're around it. It creates this emotion in you. It stirs these passions in you. It keeps you up at night. What is your holy discontent? And you need to know it's, it's not just some random lottery thing. There's a reason why you grew up the way you did. There's a reason why you experienced what you experienced, why you traveled where you traveled, why you've done what you've done. Something, something has gripped you. It stirred you. And the thing that is making you righteously angry, I believe, is making God righteously angry. And he's looking for someone just like you to label your holy discontent. And he's going to birth a vision in you. And he's going to equip you. And he's going to set you down the road of being a difference maker. So I'm going to pray that you'll actually be in touch with this holy discontent. And I'm going to ask you as your pastor, please don't medicate it. Don't watch Netflix and take up expensive hobbies and make a lot of money just for the express purpose of not having to pay attention to it. Feed your holy discontent. I want to put up some suggestions even, and this is just 
the tip of the iceberg, but as you think about what is it that God is stirring in you, um, I pray that God, by his spirit, would reveal it to you. Spirit of the living God, would you even now just stir that thing, that thing that is so unique to each one here, and they say, I can't stand it anymore. I I have to do something about it. I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I know I can't change it all, but I can maybe impact my little corner of the world. I thank you, Jesus, that you modeled what it means to be angry and sin not. Help us to know what that really means, Lord. So we don't just sort of sit on our hands waiting to be beamed up to heaven, but we, we remember that we were created for good works in Christ because we're your workmanship, we're your works of art, we're your handiwork. Speak to us, Lord, I pray.
last uh, several months of, of teaching in a church. You know, it's like broken church and hot topics and holy discontent. You're like, oh, Jonathan, just, you know, preach about, you know, how to be nice or something. Um, and maybe I just don't have that in me or something, but um, it's weird to say, and now go be angry. Um, but go be angry like Jesus, redemptively, doing something about it. The hands, the feet of Jesus making a difference in the corner of our world. I want to thank you for coming to church on such a beautiful day. And uh, I, I I don't take that sort of thing for granted. But um, would you go be the church now? God bless you. You're loved people.
Atmosphere is changing now. For the Spirit of the Lord is here. The evidence is all around that the Spirit of the Lord is here. The atmosphere is changing. The Spirit of the Lord is 
Yeah.